Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I'm going to tell you two stories. And in these stories are contained two opposite worlds, two opposed worldviews. And in the first, Plato's story of the cave, some would consider to be the summation of traditional religious thought and traditional religion. And the second is the virgin birth of Jesus, which I'm going to claim completely reverses, undoes the categories of the first story. In the conception birth of Jesus, we gain the first insight into the Trinity, who God is. But we also come to understand what it means to be human. And so the truth of the body, of embodiment, is very much connected. You know, the truth of God, the truth of who we are, it's all very much interconnected with the virgin birth. And this is the truth, I think, that specifically is denied by Plato's allegory of the cave. Now, if you've not heard the story of the cave, this is actually Plato is writing about Socrates who's telling the story. And there's this group of people and they live in a cave and they're, they're chained and they're having to face a blank wall. And on the wall, they see shadows. You know, there's a fire. They don't even know there's a fire, but there are people back there that are projecting shadows on the wall. And they give names to these shadows. And of course, for them, that is reality. They only know of this shadow world. And so for Socrates, he explains that the philosopher, you know, he's using this as an allegory, that a, a philosopher is like a, Uh, one who was a prisoner who is then freed from the cave and comes to understand that the shadows on the wall are actually no reality at all. And the philosopher then comes out into the, the light of the sun. And of course the idea is the sun is the goal. The sun is representative of this best thing. You know, it illuminates that the forms, what Plato calls the ideal or the ideas. They're not of the material world, but they possess the highest and most fundamental kind of reality. That is the thing you can get in your head. The intelligible truth is more real than the world out there, according to Plato. Knowledge of the forms constitutes this real knowledge. That is a summation of Greek Philosophy, it's actually a summation of traditional religion. Now let's look at Luke 1, 26 to 38. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. 
But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign forever over Jacob's descendants. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. And so Plato's parable of the cave depicts the exact opposite movement to what is occurring in the virgin birth. If one thinks of the cave as a womb, the entire struggle is to escape the cave, the womb, or to set aside the material world and to achieve the light, the sun. And those imprisoned in the cave live in a world of shadows. They really, they're prisoners, and only the philosopher is one who journeys toward the sun, the idea of attaining transcendent truth. And as he journeys, he leaves behind birth, the womb, material reality, as he gains transcendent truth. But with the birth of Christ, the equivalent of the singular light, the absolute, almighty, wonderful counselor, prince of peace, comes to dwell in the womb. The light source, the truth, comes to inhabit the womb. Actually, maybe literally a cave in Bethlehem. We believe the manger was located in a cave. This not only challenges Greek thought, but as has been pointed out, Plato sums up the pervasive religious and world, you know, philosophical world view. I believe it just challenges the predominant form of human thought. I mean, there's an impossibility in a virgin giving birth, but actually the greater impossibility is in God becoming human. A seeming impossibility. This is on the order in Greek thought of the sun being housed by the cave or the motherly and earthly encompassing and housing ultimate reality. You can't do that if you're a Greek or you can't think that thought. But it's not just the Greeks, it's just really human thought. Jesus born of a virgin is bringing together of the human and divine. It's bringing those worlds together, I believe, in a way that is inconceivable for most of humanity. Plato's parable of the cave captures the fact that for most people in most of history, the absolute, the absolute truth or the place of God, to get there is to shed the finite, the, the material, the relative. But in the incarnation signaled by the virgin birth, these horizontal and vertical wires are all crossed up.
You know, for a pagan, there are images of the gods actually having sex. But here, the sheer power, it's more supernatural. It's not through the natural sex act, but it's through the Holy Spirit. Justin Martyr says, he's refuting the comparisons between the virgin birth and mythological couplings of the gods. He says, when it came upon the virgin, talking about the spirit, and overshadowed her, caused her to conceive, not by intercourse, but by power. Ambrose of Milan writes, that a virgin should give birth is sign of no human, but of divine mystery. Pagans could easily conceive of sex among the gods, but the virgin birth bypasses the sex act. But it's also more natural and integrated with the human condition because Jesus will suffer, he will die, he will experience the human predicament beginning with birth, conception, and this is even more scandalous to the pagan mind. So the Greek and pagan, but maybe just the human idea of God is inverted in the virgin birth. He's the most fully human, the most fully divine. They're mixed in the motherhood of Mary. Her conception through God, you know, she gives birth to one who is fully God and fully human. This is the sign then of the virgin birth. And so the point of Christianity beginning with this birth is the subversion of the world as most people understand it. It's the undoing, you know, of the Greek and pagan thought. Christianity is going to subvert that thought, but that thought will continue to subvert Christianity. And so very early on in the church, the Gnostics arise, you know, Marcion, we believe was born about 85 AD. Valentius, about 100 AD. They're both going to argue that the created order is evil and the soul has to escape the body, very Greek understanding, in order to achieve enlightenment. So Christ could not have become a human body without losing his divinity. You can't do both. The Docetists, who are also sharing a Gnostic worldview, says if he suffered, he was not God. If he was God, he did not suffer. Well, you begin life in trauma, in birth, in suffering. And he ends life in trauma, in suffering. And so Christian apologists of the second century, Ignatius, Irenaeus, Tertullian, they all appeal to the virgin birth to defend the incarnation. They're defending it against the Gnostic, the ascetic opponents, and they appeal primarily to Mary's human motherhood as evidence of Christ's humanity, that she's a human, she's fully human, he's fully human. In the words of Ignatius, be deaf then to any talk that ignores Jesus Christ of David's lineage, of Mary, who was really born, ate and drank, was really persecuted under Pontius Pilate, was really crucified and died. And Tertullian, he goes to great lengths to emphasize the fleshiness of birth. Now some of you might know about birth. 
and the things that are involved in birth, things that we really just don't talk about in polite company. And yet Tertullian wants to talk about it because he thinks it's important that we bring out the full reality of the birth of Christ. So come now, beginning from the nativity itself, declaim against the uncleanness of the generative elements within the womb, the filthy concretion of fluid and blood, of the growth of the flesh for nine months long out of that very mire. Describe the womb as it enlarges from day to day, heavy, troublesome, restless, even in sleep, changeful in its feelings of like and desire. Inveigh now likewise against the shame itself of a woman in travail, which however ought rather to be honored in consideration of that parable, or to be held sacred in respect of the mystery of nature. Of course you are horrified also at the infant which is shed into life with the embarrassments which accompany it from the womb. This reverend course of nature you, O Marcion, and Marcion is the heretic, he's the Gnostic, you are pleased to spit upon. And yet in what way were you born? You detest a human being at his birth, then after what fashion do you love anybody? Well then, loving man, Christ, loved his nativity also, and his flesh as well. Our birth he reforms from death by a second birth from heaven. And so for Tertullian, the human flesh which unites Christ with Mary, it's intrinsic to his identity. As the divinity which unites him with God, so to the humanity which unites him to Mary. For without her, there can be no true salvation of the flesh. Now, the opposite occurs in the 5th century with Nestorius and the Nestorians. They referred to Mary as Christokos. And they're emphasizing that Mary was the mother of the humanity, the humanity of Christ, but not his divinity. And to correct this division between the humanity and the deity of Christ, the Council of Ephesus about 431, and then the Council of Chalcedon about 451, they're going to call Mary Theotokos, God-bearer, to affirm the divine and human unity of Christ. The definition of Chalcedon describes Christ as truly God and truly man, as regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards his manhood begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary, the Virgin, the God-bearer, Theotokos. I've described earlier that it may be the focus on venerating Mary, it does not translate into a full embrace of her motherhood, of the earthly, of the feminine. As Mary was made a kind of ideal and exception, this tended to reverse the meaning of the virgin birth. And so the marvel of Mary's physical maternity, even in the early patristic writings, is not that it makes Mary's motherhood transcendent, but it makes God imminent.
there's a, a kind of veneration and denigration that occurs simultaneously. Now, we can go back to uh, Augustine, who does in fact denigrate womanhood and the earthly, but actually he comes through with a startling orthodoxy in a sermon describing the virgin birth. This is actually a Christmas Day sermon from Psalms 85:11, which says, Faithfulness springs forth from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. And Augustine describes the virgin birth as a joyous merger of heaven and earth. This is Augustine. Truth, which is in the bosom of the Father, John 1.18, has sprung forth from the earth in order also to be in the bosom of his mother. Truth, by which the world is held together, has sprung from the earth in order to be carried in a woman's arms. Truth, on which the bliss of the angels is uncorruptibly nourished, has sprung from the earth in order to be suckled at breasts of flesh. Truth, which heaven is not big enough to hold, has sprung from the earth in order to be placed in a manger. As C.S. Lewis put it, what was inside the manger is larger than all that is outside the manger. Augustine imagines Christ saying, to show you that it's not any creature of God that is bad, but that it is crooked pleasures that distort them. In the beginning, when I made man, I made them male and female. I don't reject and condemn any creature that I have made. Here I am, born of a man, born of a woman. So I don't reject any creature I have made, but I reject and condemn sins, which I didn't make. Let each sex take note of its proper honor, and each confess its iniquity, and each hope for salvation. And so, despite his kind of patriarchal tendencies, his tendency to denigrate the body, Augustine affirms the goodness of the body, the goodness of the body of Mary, the goodness of male bodies, female bodies. So Mary's motherhood of Christ, it repudiates both those who denigrate the body or those who would question the deity of the human Jesus. It demands a recognition of the goodness of creation and even the messy side of creation, like in childbirth. Any fear of contamination is not due, as Tertullian describes it, it's not due to the flesh, but it's due to sin. As Augustine says in another work, maybe his, against a Manichaean, that is, he sets up this conversation, Jesus speaking. She who formed you, despise, O Manichaean, is my mother, but she was formed by my hand. If I could have been defiled in making her, I could have been defiled in being born of her. So, in Plato's cave, we encounter the symptomatic problem in human religion, human philosophy, human thought. It would fly away toward the sun, toward the transcendent, out of the world, above the material world, certainly beyond the womb to gain access to God. 
But in Christ, this world is turned upside down. God has come to the womb. In the human economy, there is a forgetting of life and a kind of death-dealing grab for truth beyond the stars. And yet on Christmas night, we know that it was a star that did not point skyward, but pointed to the humble manger in Bethlehem. The star that guided the shepherds and the wise men points us to a humble manger, probably in a cave outside of Bethlehem, where Emmanuel, God, is with us. Plato would deny the womb and the tomb. He would deny the reality of pain, suffering, and death. He would deny the reality of the material world. But Jesus begins his life with the trauma of birth. He ends it with the trauma of his death. The trauma of sweating blood in the garden of Gethsemane. And being crucified on Golgotha. He begins life maybe in a cave located in Bethlehem. He's buried in a very similar cave-like tomb from which he's resurrected. Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us, means God's incarnate presence with us. Where the truth of Plato is philosophical, it's in the head, it's somehow distant and cold. The truth of Jesus is in a womb, in the tomb, and in all the places between. And so this Advent season, we're not really waiting upon the birth of Jesus, but we're recognizing the implication of his birth 2,000 years ago. Christ is with us. God is with us. And this is the season when we're fully to acknowledge the reality of his presence in our lives, all around us. And we are to rejoice and celebrate that reality. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org. Dot org.